Hello and welcome back to Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost Podcast. I'm Brienne. I'm Molly. Thank you for coming back again to yet another week. Last of... week was interesting. Yeah. It was something. I feel like now we know to get like drunk as we go through the episode, but we and can't just be yeah. We can't just be shwasted when we start. But we learned. We did. So we apologize. She's a little messy, but we love her anyways. I'm talking about episode four. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, this week I'm going to tell a story. It's a crime story. We love a crime. What is it? Can you guess what? I feel like I've told you about this already. Is it like the murder of the Pope? Yeah, it's the time that the church maybe murdered the Pope. We don't know. I'm for so sure. excited. This is the one I wanted to do when we started the podcast. Um, I We've like, been talking about this yeah, forever. I read a book about it. I read a book. So a whole novel. A whole. It was, it was pretty hefty too. Yeah, and it was very wordy, and there's More a lot of like pages. financial talk going on that I don't understand. But okay, it's very interesting and. Like, heads up, it's all a conspiracy theory. There might be some truth to it, but it also might just be a series of coincidences. But I'll just get right into it. And basically, John Paul I um, became Pope on August 26, 1978, at the age of 65. And 33 days later, on September 29, 1978, he would be found dead in his room. Wait, how many days later? 33 days. Alright, so, so he very was he was only a pope lived. for thirty-three days. Gotcha. Yes. And there was never an autopsy performed on his body. So we really may never know the answer because his body was embalmed almost immediately, and there are certain things that you can't do after Test for after. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So the biggest theory is that he was poisoned. But um, it's pretty shady. Uh, the Vatican is technically their own separate country, so they're their own sovereignty. Even though they're, like, landlocked within Italy, they're their own government, so they have their own laws. Weird. Um, so, like, if, if, you know, if you woke up, well, you woke up dead, um, if, we, if we found your body dead and then I immediately embalmed you, that would be frowned upon. I think some questions would Yeah, arise. they'd be like, no, we want to do an autopsy. That's just very shady. Yeah, it's... In most countries, it would be illegal, but again, the Vatican is their own government. Was he, like, ill before? So, okay, so he was 65, not super old. This was the 70s. Um, So after the fact, they started to say that he had, oh, all his life he had health problems, he had a heart attack, like, all this stuff. But there had never, like, no one before had known him to have health problems. And I feel like if he had, like, this wide array of health problems you wouldn't elect him into a very like well also stressful position when someone is elected pope like they go through like he had recently gotten a physical who like the doctor who gave him the physical was like yeah he was completely healthy when i saw him suspicious yes already interested continue and for a pope like 65 is actually pretty young many people are in their 70s or even their 80s when they're elected to the position so this, you know, it's just, I'll, I'll get into it. It's a series of possible coincidences that are very unfortunate, but my main source outside of internet research was the book In God's Name by the investigative journalist David Yallop that came out in 1984. 
so six years after his death. While there are multiple books out now about conspiracy theories in regards to his death, this was the first and cites actual confirmed scandals that happened in the church at the time as reasoning for his murder. These included scandals within the Institute for Works of Religion, more commonly known as the Vatican Bank, which was instated in 1942 to control and organize the church's assets for the purpose of charity and religion. There are also controversies about his more liberal opinions in regards to birth control that may have contributed to his death. The Vatican, of course, says that Yallop's book is completely false. And the book does state some things um, that can definitely be proven, like the financial scandals, and some that can't. Um, that he says that he got through interviewing people for three years, um, just talking to people and like what they heard from like working in the Vatican or like having family that worked there. Um, he also said that he would donate 100% of profits to a charity of the Vatican's choice if they'd commit to just investigating his claims. Yeah, because they spoke out and were like, this book is false, blah, 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 all that. Um, they never did investigate anything. Does it say, like, why he, like, had such an interest in this? He or? was just an investigative journalist, and I think that was just part of his job was finding stories like this. And it just, I mean, I guess if, if you were Catholic at the time, that would be, I don't know if he was, but... That would be like really crazy. Yeah, because I've never yeah. even heard of this before. When it's something as big as the Vatican, too, there's a lot of possibility for cover-ups, and I think he was just interested in knowing the real story behind like what the Vatican was telling people. Right, what the churches, yeah, yeah. So to start with, I just want to give an overview of Pope John Paul I's early life and his road to becoming the Pope. Let's do it. Yes. This will give some insight into how he formed most of his theological views, which were in some ways considered radical for the church, especially um, when he was, you know, in the, the 60s, the 70s, when he was like working um, first as a bishop, then as a cardinal, and then eventually as the Pope. So, he was born Albino Luciani on October 12, 1917, in the province of Belluno in northern Italy. At his birth, the midwife was concerned for his health, and he was baptized that day because they thought he was going to die. Aww. Yeah, he lived. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't sure at first. <laughs> it actually ends here. <laughs> I needed the proper... Empathetic yes. response. Thank you, Brianne, You're for welcome. your sympathies. His father worked many jobs and often had to travel to find work, doing everything from bricklaying to blowing glass. He supported his son in becoming a priest because he hoped that he'd be an advocate for the working class, which we will learn was not really a priority of the church at the time. Also, throughout the 1900s, the Italian economy was not great. Uh, poor people really had a hard time. A lot of people, like families, would have to split up because the father would often have to go and travel looking for work because there was not really like reliable sources of income gotcha. in a lot of towns. So sad. Yeah. So he grew up like, you know, his family, they were dedicated Catholics, but he also grew up in poverty and like seeing the effects that like having his family split up had on him and like the people around him. So he knew he wanted to be a priest at the age of 10 when a Franciscan friar came to his town to preach and he would join a minor seminary a year later, which is basically a high school for boys who have expressed interest in the priesthood to prepare them to join an actual seminary when they're older. 
so from the age of 10, he's already like going off to, you know, on his journey to be a priest. Gotcha. So he knew from a very young age that yes. this is what I wanted to do. Yes. Um, and it was expensive, like probably not crazy expensive, but like they had to pay for him to go to school, which wasn't an option for a lot of people. So his family had to make a lot of sacrifices for him to be able to go to the seminary. Um, his um, his priest at the seminary described him as too lively uh, because, God forbid, a priest actually have a personality. <laughs> when he moved on to a major seminary, he applied to join the Jesuit order and was denied acceptance. This was probably for the best because later on in his career, he clashed pretty heavily with Jesuit priests on theological views and issues. They tended to lean more conservative than he did. Okay. He would attend Belluno Seminary and officially became ordained on July 7th, 1935. My birthday. <gasps> Today's your birthday. Did you know that? You I look did. shocked. No, I know July 7th I... is your birthday. Mm. When's mine? Long pause. October 4th. <laughs> I learned that this year, though, so. That is true. You did <laughs> set up a lot of things. It took us living together <laughs> for me to learn. <laughs> yes. Okay. Anywho. He would work for his home parish for two years before becoming a professor at his seminary that he'd gone to, and he would teach moral theology, canon law, and sacred art. It was often said that teaching and working as a parish priest were his main goals in life, and that he'd never really intended to be promoted beyond that. He really excelled at working one-on-one -on -one with members of the community and felt that he could have the most direct impact at this level. A common issue with the church that Luciani would discuss throughout his life was his distaste for material wealth. As someone who'd grown up poor with a father who had to leave home and travel to look for work, he'd seen the impact that poverty had on families, even those who remained completely faithful to Catholicism. Seeing the clergy being treated like royalty while their parishioners suffered would greatly upset him, and even when he later became pope, he would reject certain extravagances that everyone before him had accepted. Um, for example, when someone becomes a pope, they there's well before him there was a coronation, and they would be crowned with this like massive tiara, like solid gold covered in jewels, and like traditionally they would wear it regularly. He was the first to never wear the crown, and he changed it from a coronation to an inauguration. Hmm. So he wanted it to be more like, you know, I'm here to serve the church and. Like, I'm not a monarch or a royal figure. That's so, really cool. Yeah. So he was the first one to ever do that. And I think after that, it became more of an inauguration. Like, the coronation thing kind of died out. Like, after he said it, I think it was kind of seen as, like, poor taste okay. to go back to it. Because um, he'd, like, pointed out how ridiculous it was. Right. So now it was like, oh. Yeah. Right. Now you're going to be, you know, the... The one who's like, no, give me the crown, bitch. Like, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, back to him, current day, professor and parish priest. Um, he gained a lot of respect from his fellow priests, and he would make a lot of friends who were more powerful than him, and they would help him in pushing his career forward, even if he didn't necessarily want that. Um, he became known in his community for his commitment to teaching catechism classes to the youth, which many of his colleagues overlooked, but he thought was very important to like keeping the church alive, which, yeah. I mean, we had bad confirmation classes and now 
now look at us. That's it. So, <laughs> so. so there Maybe you. if we had him as our our confirmation teacher, we, we wouldn't, wouldn't be, be doing sinners. this podcast. We'd be heterosexual. <laughs> We'd be in a nunnery right now. We'd be in a nunnery. Um, so this and his friendly demeanor helped him to build a good reputation. And in 1958, at the age of 46, he was ordained a bishop and sent to work and oversee the church in the diocese of Vittorio Veneto. This was a much bigger role in a much bigger city than what he'd been accustomed to. And the first thing he did when he got there was decline the luxury apartment typically offered to the bishop within the city, choosing to live in more basic accommodations. Because he didn't understand why they would pay for him to live in like a luxurious apartment. All right, I'm really, yeah, like. I'm liking this man. Yeah, like he's certainly not perfect by modern day standards, but the fact that he just like gives a fuck about poor people and like understands the hypocrisy of the church when it comes to money. Yes. I think is really important. That's really cool. So a series of events happened throughout Luciani's career that would have a major impact on him becoming Pope and the views he would express as the church's leader. One of the most significant being the Second Vatican Council. From 1962 to 1965, the Second Vatican Council occurred, more commonly referred to as Vatican II. The councils were a chance for leaders in the church, a commission known as the Roman Curia. Curia? Roman Curia? Italian words. You want to read it for me? (laughs) (laughs) To gather and discuss important issues and decisions that needed to be made. The first Vatican Council had taken place in 1869 and was basically just the Pope at the time declaring that the Pope himself was infallible and that everything that he said was correct and true. What? Yeah, so the this was the this was in the 1800s when the first ever Vatican Council happened. But yeah, he was just like everything I say is right and we should make that official. And they were like, "Yes." So the first thing Vatican II did was reverse that. A couple world wars had happened since then, and they realized, "Huh, okay, popes aren't infallible. Sometimes they make bad decisions. Maybe they're people. Maybe they're humans and wow. we shouldn't treat them like gods." So they immediately reversed that saying, Yes, the Pope is like our closest link to God, but he is still a human and he is still fallible like any other human. Um, They also discussed issues in the modern world, primarily artificial birth control. (laughs) The birth control pill was not approved for use until 1960. So this was something that the church had never even thought of before. And married couples in the church were anxious to know if using it was allowed. So again, they're only discussing it in the context of married couples, of course, but still that the Catholic Church, you know, before they just assumed like, oh, even married people can't use this. Like, yes, Brienne. Okay, I do have a question. Yes. So it makes more sense to have like 20 children when everyone's in poverty. That is straight up his point. Like he, that is why Luciani, I'm going to go back and forth between calling him that and Pope John Paul I, but until he becomes Pope, we'll call him that. But that was his main issue um, because he had grown up in a family that could not afford to take care of all As the many kids, kids had. that they had. Yeah. And he had a brother. His brother at the time had 10 children, was basically in the same situation that he was in, that they were both in when they were growing up. He could not afford to take care of them. And they just had no way to stop having kids except abstinence. But Before, they'd been told that once they were married, sex was fine. (laughs) So it's like a, 
you can't win. Nope. No matter what you do. Um, and I also think it's funny that like a group of men that aren't even allowed to have sex or get married, get to have this big discussion about get to make the ultimate decision. Yeah. And again, they're only talking about this in the context of people that are already married. So people that have already followed their rules, they've gotten married in the Catholic church. They, I don't know if they ever, you know, I'm sure not everyone waited, but let's say a good portion of them waited to have sex until they got married. And now they're still being told that they could be sinning if they take a pill that would help them not have 30 children. <laughs> There's just, you just can't win. Yeah, no. No matter what you it's do. It's a lose-lose situation. Yeah. Yeah, so we talked about why Luciani was pro-birth control. Um, but again, he was only a bishop at the time of Vatican II, so he was okay. not really high enough. To really have a say in to, any yeah. of this. So he was just kind of watching this happen. But the Pope at the time was Pope Paul VI. He really didn't have a strong opinion in regards to the pill. He literally did not know what to think, which is why he called the council. When interviewed by an Italian journalist, Pope Paul said, the church hasn't had to deal with such things for centuries, and it is somewhat foreign and even embarrassing for men of the church to talk about. So the commissions meet, the reports pile up, but then we will still have to make the final decision. God will simply have to enlighten us. So he called on the council to vote and discuss the issue, but in the end, he would still get the final say, regardless of the vote. Who would? The, whoever the Pope, the Pope, Pope right at the now? time, yeah. So Pope Paul, I know it's confusing because then it's Pope John Paul. Pope Paul VI or something? Yeah, like Pope that. Paul VI right. is currently Pope, and gotcha. he gets the final say, but there will be a vote. Do you want to guess how they voted? I think I talked to you about this, too, because I was angry when I read it. I mean, I'm a bunch of white elderly men. I'm going to guess that they voted no. They voted in favor of it. They were like, yeah, people should be able to use birth control really? if they're married within the church. They voted 64 to 4. 64 <laughs> out of the 68 priests who voted said yes. They should be allowed to use birth control. Okay, so what's the problem? So a report was put together and sent to smaller groups of bishops and cardinals around the world to gauge their opinions, and then they could write responses and opinions for the Pope to consider. One of the individuals who disapproved of the use of birth control was a cardinal named Ottaviani, very Italian name. He was secretary of the Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Holy Office, or in other words, one of the highest ranking people in the church after the Pope. He's probably like second or third in like the ranking of powerful people. Okay. So he disapproved of birth control. So he contacted the four priests who had voted no on birth control and basically had them put together a second report to go with the original, um, it, where they, they said how awful and unholy birth control was, all this stuff. One of the four even wrote that the Holy Spirit had personally appealed to him on the issue, telling him that it was wrong, and if approved, he would have to leave the Catholic Church. All right, then leave, bitch. Yeah, bitch, go, finally, <laughs> get out of here. So Ottaviani used his closeness to the Pope to increase the influence of this negative report, even though the vote was literally 64 to 4 in favor of people using it. Um, Luciani during this time was one of the bishops that wrote to the Pope and he had a strong argument in favor of birth control. The Pope did read it and he would remember it. Um, it, would, it would actually help Luciani later on, um, but the Pope was fully aware of Luciani's opinion that people should be allowed to use birth control. In it he wrote, there has never perhaps been such a difficult decision for the church, both for the intrinsic difficulties and for the numerous implications affecting other problems. And in that, he was referring to the extreme poverty that many members of the church lived in, 
and how this was increased by having more children. So Pope Paul would eventually announce the birth control was not an approved method of contraception. And here it gets, it gets weird and that the only acceptable forms were abstinence and the rhythm method, which is a really creepy way of saying pooling out. Wait. Yeah, they had a term for it. The rhythm method? That's what they called pooling out. Well, clearly it hasn't worked. Yeah. He was like, if there's not ejaculation, then it's not like, yeah, it's like a whole thing. It's not even scientifically. Yeah, like, it's it's literally just him pulling it out of his ass. Like I don't, <laughs> like again, like these old ass virgins. Let's <laughs> be real heated. Let's see. <laughs> just, like what a dumb little bitch. Um. Oh, also important note. Around this time, um, Pope Paul, or no, sorry, Pope Paul's predecessor, Pius XII, had started the Vatican Bank. Um, so Pope Paul was like only the second priest or second, the second pope to like have to work with the Vatican Bank, which was basically just instated to manage the church's capital, which I get like it is a large organization at the end of the day. And like you do need a way to control funds. But at this time, the Vatican Bank started to operate more like a business, and it had started investing in properties and companies around the world for the sake of profit and more money for the church. One of the companies they invested in was a pharmaceutical brand called Sereno, whose best-selling product was... What was it? Can anybody guess? <laughs> it was a birth control pill what, what? <laughs> called Latolas. That was their best-selling product, and the church invested in it. When it makes them money, they don't even care. Yeah. That was one of my bullet points. Yeah. Just the word, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this is where it gets interesting. So after the decision to ban birth control, Luciani would remain loyal to the Pope and publicly respect his decision, which knowing his true feelings made Pope Paul trust him and eventually in 1969 make him the Patriarch of Venice and in 1973 a Cardinal because he respected his loyalty. Cardinals in the Catholic Church are one step below the Pope, and they're the ones who elect the new one when the time comes. Okay. They're also generally where you pull the next one from. So because of his loyalty to him, he promoted him up the ranks because he was like, oh, this guy like respects me, even though I know his opinion is different than mine, but he's still loyal to me, so I'm going to like push him up. Okay. Which, you know. Politics. Yeah, it's all politics. Yeah, so many people around him were not aware of his controversial views regarding birth control um, and, like, the impact that could have if he was promoted to a higher stance. Like, most people just assumed, like, oh, he's loyal to the Pope, so he aligns with his views. So people really didn't know right, they didn't where know he stood where, in yeah. regards to that. So after becoming the Patriarch of Venice, which is kind of, like, Venice was a huge like it was the city of Venice, but it also was just a huge job and he had control over a large diocese of people. Um, he continued to shake things up in the eyes of more traditional church leaders. He was known for frequently being mistaken for an everyday priest because he disliked wearing the more extravagant robes that bishops typically wore. He advocated for the Islamic community in Venice to get permission to build a mosque, saying that they had every right to have a place of worship in the city that they lived in. So right. yeah, he was all about like, communicating with people of other religions for yeah. unity because um, he was like world peace is only going to happen sounds if... like a stand-up guy yeah like he was pretty cool 
Um, he interacted a lot with the disabled community in Venice, giving them communion when other priests refused to. They literally wouldn't give communion. Even if they came to church, they like would not give them communion. Why? They said that they didn't know what was going on. Even if like a person would just have like a physical disability. Um, and at one point he sold a church heirloom that had once belonged to a former Pope to raise money for them. That's really cool. Which was also controversial because it was like this big solid gold cross owned by a Pope and he just sold it. I think it had been a gift to him when he became the Patriarch of Venice and he was okay. like, okay, I don't want to sell this. <laughs> Donate all the money. Um, another story told about him was that one of his fellow priests was a property owner and landlord. <laughs> Fuck landlords. <laughs> True. And they had evicted a tenant who couldn't afford to pay their rent. Upon hearing this, he appealed to the priest to let them stay. And when they refused, he helped the tenant pay their rent at another place. Aww. Yeah. Which also, priests shouldn't be landlords. Fuck out of here. What, what the yeah, fuck is no. that? But, like, he sounds like the closest to the teachings of Jesus. That was his whole thing. He, like, when he became Pope, he was like, we need to get back to, like, what Jesus wanted. Which, if you read the Gospels, Jesus was just like, help the poor, help the sick. Like, let's be good people together. And, like, that's all he wanted to do. Exactly. Yeah. And he sounds like he's actually trying to follow it. Yeah. So, again, he was considered radical because he gave a fuck about poor people. Um, so 1978 rolls around. Luciani is now a cardinal and Pope Paul VI passes away, opening the door for a conclave, which is what they call when all the cardinals come to the Vatican and they're basically locked up in there until they can elect a new pope. Oh, is that the, then they turn that light on? So like, yeah, if there's, if like the day goes by and they're undecided, they let out black smoke. And if they've chosen a new pope, it's, they, white, smoke. it's white smoke. Yeah. So um, it was actually funny because when this happened, when they like finally voted him in, they like couldn't get the smoke to go white and it kept turning gray. So all like the city was like, what's what's going on? Do right. we all get a pope or not? Like, yeah, uh, <laughs> maybe that was a bad omen. Um, but before he died, Pope Paul had passed a couple new rules in regards to the election. One of them being that to win, you had to get two thirds plus one of the votes. Um, this for him was just to make it more fair. Okay. Because like apparently in the past there had just been like, you're not technically supposed to um, campaign for the spot. It's supposed to be like, oh, someone nominates you because you're like a stand up guy. But they're obviously, you know, of course people are like secretly campaigning. Right. Um, he also made a rule saying that no one over 80 could be elected, which ruled out a pretty big chunk of people because people in the Catholic Church are fucking old. old. They're old. Yeah, everybody's old. <laughs> like, old men. It's like people who run for president. <laughs> which, what can go wrong? But yeah. Like, I voted for Biden, but like, voted for him fully knowing. He could die at any moment. <laughs> okay, so he showed up to the Vatican with no intention of being considered. Like I said, you don't really run for Pope, but there are usually people who are, like, kind of discreetly gathering supporters, making their views known, their plans, so to, like, increase the chance of being voted for. He was not one of those people. When asked by a reporter before the conclave if he considered himself in the running, he described himself as a C-list candidate. Who does that mean? He was just like, I'm like, not even in the top, like, of anybody's mind. Like, no one's even thinking about voting for me. I'm like, not, I'm just here to vote, basically. Okay. 
Okay. Well, it's impossible to confirm exactly how everyone voted for the multiple ballots leading up to the final selection. David Yallop, whose book I've referenced, said that Luciani, for every vote, because there are multiple votes until you finally get to, like, the two-thirds. Okay. So you kind of, like, maybe the first vote is split into four, and then people, like, split off more. So if someone only gets, like, two votes, then they aren't in the next one. Yeah. Okay. But again, it's a very, like, secret process, so this is all kind of speculative. But David Yallop, again, says that for every single vote, Luciani supported the same person, and it was Cardinal Lorscheider of Brazil. Um, and even in the final vote, he, like, wrote him in. That's, oh, no well, like, again, this is speculative, but he said that this is based off of, like, what he's heard and talking to people. Um, but it also makes sense because Lorscheider was a strong advocate for the working class as well, and he wanted the church to do more to end poverty globally. But most of the cardinals refused to vote for anyone who wasn't European. So I believe um, Pope Francis was actually the first, like, South American person to ever the, to, to be the Pope. Pope. Pope yeah. Pope. <laughs> I think it's, like, Pope. Pap smear? But yeah, he was the first, I don't know if he was the first non-European, but he was the first like South American person. Um, But again, this is the 70s. There really wasn't like, it was very unlikely that a non-European was going to win. Mm -hmm. Um, He was also an outspoken anti-fascist, which in the 1900s, the Vatican didn't have a great track record with speaking out against fascism. I'm going to go on a short tirade about World War II, and then we can return to our regularly scheduled programming. (laughs) Okay, so not-so-fun fact. During World War II, the Vatican refused to denounce Hitler. Are you kidding? Yeah, so many believe this was so he, um, he would continue giving the church the church tax. So in Germany, I believe it's still a thing today. If you are a member of certain religions, you pay a tax where the money goes directly to the church. I'm not sure the specifics, but possibly this is like instead of, you know how people like donate to their church, but maybe this is like a replacement for that. But basically it's built into your taxes. And to get out of it, you have to like officially paperwork, like denounce religion. Which I'd be like, yeah, I don't want to pay tax. But like, (laughs) but back in if it was either that or die. Well, Well, no. Okay. So many believe that the Pope at the time, Pius XII, who also happened to be the founder of the Vatican Bank, came to some sort of agreement, again, all speculative. They believe that he came to an agreement with the Third Reich so that they would leave the country that is the Vatican alone and not invade them. Because you have to remember, Mussolini is running Italy during World War II, another fascist. So it's speculated that he did this so, one, he could continue collecting the church tax, and two, so that the Vatican would be left alone and not be invaded. So we just let... Yeah. Hitler be Hitler. The church's excuse for this is that they could help more Jewish people if they didn't upset Hitler. And they, again, they are saying this. They said that they helped hide Jewish people across Italy, like in churches and even in the Vatican itself to help them escape. Someday I'll do a whole thing about World War II in the Catholic Church because there's like a lot of stuff and there's like too much to get into. Okay, so documents concerning the matter have been locked up in the Vatican archives where no one has been allowed to view them. In 2019, though, Pope Francis made certain documents available to the public on the 90th anniversary of Pope Pius XII being elected. 
and researchers looking through them found memos from Vatican staffers with anti-Semitic undertones, one mm. saying that the Jewish people tend to exaggerate and that things probably weren't as bad as people were saying. And uh, as we know now, things were way fucking worse than they people thought. thought. Even, like, the American government was like, we didn't know how bad it was, but then they, like, wouldn't let refugees in. Yeah, no. I don't know. I don't think it's a good excuse. No, it's not. Um, I, yeah, I think if you're going to be a religion, you need to act like it, and that things are more, things like that are more important than, I don't know, money, maintaining your status, like, I don't know. I just think if you were actually a religious person, you would speak out about, like, you would think, the Holocaust, you know, yeah. like, but it's fucked up, and, but back to the conclave, um, the Brazilian cardinal. Having a leader that was outspoken against fascism, like the Cardinal of Brazil, was a potential risk for the church. Politically, the Catholic Church hasn't always leaned towards the side of morality, but rather the side that benefits them in their agenda the most. Not calling out evil fascists may have prevented the Vatican from falling prey to Nazi takeover, but at what cost? The lives of many, the lives many, of a lot many of people. people. Yes. Um, so bring in Luciani. Again, while his views were more liberal-leaning than most of his colleagues, he was a quiet and soft-spoken person who had seemingly displayed unwavering loyalty to the former pope. This is where he can really sneak in and make a difference, though. Which he didn't really want to, but he was kind of seen as, oh, this guy is he's loyal. He's, he's going to be easy to control. Pushover. Yeah. yeah. So they kind of assumed things about him. They also didn't know his actual views on things like birth control. Um, they thought he was just a safe choice because at the time, like, other than, like, a few people starting to vote for him, the vote was really split between, like, a very conservative contender and, like, a very outspokenly liberal contender. Okay. And it was kind of, like, a stalemate between the two with, like, Luciani kind of coming in a little bit. Okay. Um, so he just seemed like a safe choice for both sides. And after multiple days of ballots and discussions, he would eventually, to his surprise, be elected pope. People said that when it was announced, he did not look very happy. And, but in private conversations, he would say that he regretted accepting the position, but felt that it was his duty to the church to accept. But as we've learned, he was not someone that really craved power. And I think he honestly felt that like being in such a high position prevented him from actually like making change. interacting with people, yeah. like making change, like helping communities. Um, it was just not something he wanted. So right off the bat, like I said, instead of holding a coronation, he held an inauguration on August 26, 1978. Didn't wear the crown, all that. He chose the name Pope John Paul I. Names for popes tend to signify the views that they're going to align with. So if someone had chosen like the name Pius, like that guy from World War II, he was very conservative. That would like kind of give... An idea of, like, yeah. the views that they're going to support. Yeah, and, like, the way that they're going to run the church. So he chose Paul first because he just respected him and, like, felt that he wouldn't have been Pope without him. So it was just kind of a, a way of acknowledging him. And then he also added on the name John. He was the first one to choose two names instead of one. Okay. So a lot of people saw this, like, oh, he's going to, like, mix things up a bit. We can't really tell what direction he's going to go gotcha. in. Gotcha. Yeah. So he was in charge, a new era was coming in, and uh, he had some plans for the future of the Catholic Church. So the first thing he did was set out a six-point plan 
of what he wanted to do and accomplish during his time as Pope. So number one, he wanted to renew the church through the policies implemented by Vatican II. Um, number two, he wanted to revise canon law. Canon law is basically the rules set forward um, by the Pope and the Cardinals, other church leaders. So this is what would concern things like letting people use birth control okay. because they basically written it into canon law. These are like human made laws. They're not like the 10 commandments. They're like, these are the things you that have we to have decided. Church, yeah. Because yeah. obviously Jesus wasn't out there like, you can't take a pill. Yeah. Uh, like, he didn't give a fuck. But like, <laughs> canon law is like the things that humans in the church have made and are saying are laws. I don't know if talk about that, but. <laughs> That's a whole different discussion. Yeah. Three, um, he wanted to remind the church of their duty to preach the gospel and to get back to Jesus's teachings. Jesus, of course, focused mainly on helping people, the sick, the poor, and he wanted that to be a higher priority and to kind of refocus the church. Four, he wanted to promote church unity without watering down church doctrine. Five, he wanted to promote dialogue. I believe with this, he was mainly referring to interfaith dialogue. And six, he wanted to promote world peace and social justice. So all of these things seem pretty Positive, good. Positive, yeah. Yeah, pretty solid. Why would someone want to murder him? Can we think any reasons? Because mm -hmm. he'd be doing a little too good. So in order for the church to truly return to the teachings of the gospel, John Paul would need to root out any suspected corruption oh, happening throughout is. the church. There yeah. it is. So David Yallop, again, my book guy, in the book, he kind of outlines three major people within the church that would have something to lose if Pope John Paul I did a thorough investigation of corruption. Okay. So these three people, all very powerful, all have significant standing, um, and I'm just going to kind of go over them so it doesn't get too confusing. Um, but the first is Archbishop Paul Marcinkus. He was an American, um, but he was now working as the president of the Vatican Bank. Hmm. So pretty high up, you know, he's managing basically the church Money. funds for the entire world, the entire yeah. Catholic community. Um, he'd had some shady dealings that John Paul had heard rumors about. And after becoming Pope, he quietly initiated an investigation of the bank. He didn't want anyone to know. He didn't want anyone to like Try to be sly. Get yeah. yeah. Um, the financial advisor for the bank um, was also kind of shady. He was not um, a priest or like, he was just like a normal not normal, but he wasn't like a part of the church. He was named Michel Sindona, and he was uh, one of the most powerful businessmen in Italy. And he was also linked to the mafia. <laughs> yes, this would be confirmed later, but at the time, like he's, this is all just rumors. It's just speculation. Yeah. Um, he was also a Freemason. Again, just a rumor at the time, but um, Freemasonry is weird, and I don't quite understand all of it, but it is grounds for immediate excommunication from the Catholic Church, because okay. the Catholic Church outlines, like, you can't be a part of an organization that is, like, secret. So, like, in Freemasonry, like, we can't just, like, go and see, like, what do they do? Like, what are their rituals? It's all a secret. So, because it's so, like, weird. yeah, it's because of that, that is why, like, the Catholic Church on paper at least, says that no one who's a Catholic can be a Freemason. Um, but the first scandal with Marcinkus and Sindona had happened a couple years prior, and it involved counterfeit American bonds worth $14.5 million being delivered to the Vatican, rumored to have been produced by the Mafia. What? 
And the $14.5 million were supposed to be like the first of $950 million in counterfeit bonds, but they were kind of like the test bonds. Like, let's see if anybody catches on with $100 million. Yeah. So they got accepted by a bank because that's what they were trying to see. They were like, will a bank accept these fake bonds? And it initiated this entire investigation by like the American FBI. But because the Vatican is very good at like closing doors, Mm -hmm. they never found anything. Again, this is like years prior, like he is not yet the Pope, but he had heard things, you know, like things get around. Oh yeah. It's the the rumor mill. Yeah. So it'd been spread under the rug and he wanted a thorough investigation of the Vatican's bank dealings to be performed because he was like, if we're actually going to like be committed to like helping the poor, like we can't be stealing money, laundering money, like all this stuff. Nothing would really come out until 1982, so four years after he's dead, because, again, he dies in 1978. But Marcinkus had been funneling Vatican funds into another bank alongside Sindona that would eventually collapse, um, causing the Vatican to lose over $20 million of funds. A warrant, again, this is all after he's dead, but I think this kind of represents, like, what he had to lose if the investigation had happened years prior. Um, A warrant would go out for Marcinkus' arrest, but he hid in the Vatican until it expired because the Pope after John Paul let him. Are you kidding? And he never served time for his crimes. He would move back to America and retire in Arizona, dying in 2006. If Marcinkus had been caught in the act with a more concrete investigation, such as, you know, one done by the Pope in 1978— he probably would have been, like, actually arrested as an accomplice to a mafia member, and he probably would have served time in prison. Because Sindona would get caught. I think it was something... I think he murdered somebody, so it was technically unrelated, but he he would get poisoned in prison, I believe, and die. And then, like, the guy who, like, owned the bank that they were funneling money into supposedly committed suicide but they think he was murdered like it it was very shady and he's pretty much the only one that got out of this drama and like this is confirmed to happen like if you look this up like the vatican bank did have a huge scandal in the 80s involving marcinkus like this is confirmed um and he again he probably would have served prison time if it weren't if the pope had actually lived and gotten to fully investigate the bank Wow. So this, I think, gives him enough reason to have wanted. Definitely has motive. Yeah, he definitely has motive. Um, Yallop also proposes that he worked with the Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Jean-Marie Velot. Velot? Velot? We'll call him Velot. That's nice. Um, He was the Secretary of State of the Vatican, which is also a very high-ranking second or third in command within the church. Um, Pope John Paul I had kept him on temporarily because he'd been unexpectedly elected, so he did not have a cabinet in mind. So he was like, can you stay in this position until I can find someone else? He agreed. And while Pope John Paul, you know, shortly after he became Pope, he was sent um, an unconfirmed list of 121 church leaders who are members of the Freemasons, which, like I said, if that is true they would immediately get excommunicated from the church. And Velo is Again, one of them. so they have motive as well. Yeah, he, so, you know, Velo is, like, the second or third highest ranking member of the church. If he is outed as a Freemason, he's immediately discommunicated. Like, right. Yeah, and then if the rest of the list is true, um, that's 120 other people who are mad at you and who don't want you to fuck with them. 
Hmm. So, yeah. So while it's unconfirmed, Yala proposes that the Pope was going to start an investigation on these claims, meaning, like I said, 121 church members, cardinals, priests, bishops, whatever, would have a reason to hate him. Motive again. Interesting. So, okay. yeah. So he definitely has a lot of people that... So Yala proposes that, like, Velo and Marcinkus kind of, like, work together. That's the yeah. part that's, like, really unconfirmed because there's no evidence that they were, like buddies are like working together but he's like okay Velo lives in the Vatican he has mm -hmm. access Marcinkus is basically controlling all the money right um and then there was another guy um our third suspect is Cardinal John Cody also American um he's the Cardinal of Chicago at the time um he was rumored to have a long-term mistress that he was giving large sums of money to I believe he had a position like dealing with the financials from like the American side and a hundred, not hundred, maybe $1 million of church funds disappeared during his time as the Cardinal of Chicago. They, it just disappeared. It's, it's not accounted for. Meaning that, um, again, if financial investigations were performed, that would probably show up. So again, a lot less money than the other guy, but he's dealing with like still the one guy's at the head of the Vatican bank. He's, you know, the head of like a diocese, but still, you know, he has something to lose as well. There's a lot of people that have a lot yes. to lose. Yeah. So Yallop says that these men had enough power and presence in the Vatican and in the hierarchy of the church overall to kill the, the Pope, hypothetically poisoning him. That is what he proposes as his theory. Other theories claim that they were afraid Pope John Paul I would re reverse the decisions made in Vatican II to ban birth control, which... I don't know, that to me, it seems like a slightly less, like, a reason to... Yeah, I don't think that they would care that much. Yeah, but also you have to think that, like, these are people who, like, they thrive off of having control over the the members of the Catholic Church. Like, they basically control these people, and they control their decisions, and, like, to change something that significant would be a big deal. I mean, I think that definitely, yeah, yeah, like, I don't think help it's... his case, but, like, it, it, the money. The money Yeah, is I think always... the money is the... Yeah, when you're talking about, like, sums of money that large, I'm like, I feel like there's nothing that people, like, won't do. Well, impossible jail time. Yeah, and, like, well. connections to the mafia. So, like, these people aren't are already afraid. shady. They're they already, aren't afraid to kill yeah. people. Um, so, on September 29th, 1978, John Paul I is found dead in his bed with a book 33 days after being made Pope. Later, they would say it was a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Um but the reason why it's shady is that, like, the details about his death as they were being released were not very concrete. They were not very consistent. Like, right off the bat, they weren't like, oh, he had a heart attack. Like, they didn't say that. They were like, he's dead, and uh, we embalmed him already. No autopsy. Sorry. Don't know. And then they had to come up with, like, a story yeah. after. Um, so, again, most countries, this is not uh, this is not legal. But you yeah. have to remember that the Vatican is their own country. So they it's get to make thing. the rules. Support for some theories, um, because again, a lot of this is speculative, as most conspiracy theories are, but in 2018, a man named Anthony Ramondi, nephew of the legendary mob boss, Lucky Luciano, said that he helped his uncle assist Marcinkus in poisoning the Pope with cyanide. So I again, I, who knows how true that is? Yeah, but That's, they did have they had connections to the to the mafia. They had the like people who had experience like discreetly killing people. Yeah, they had money, money that was could have been lost if they'd been exposed. People would go to jail. 
and again, like a couple years later, Marcinkus would be formally like people would know like oh he was doing corrupt. Yeah, he yeah. was corrupt. He would very least, time, he's, but, yeah, yeah. So there is motive, but we'll probably never know what actually happened because no autopsy. That is crazy. Yeah, it's like it seems. I don't know if you do some research online. Like I read an article and and it was very much like all of these theories are crazy. And then it was like a Catholic published like newspaper. Okay. Like okay. it was, yeah. Cause I'm reading this and they're like, Oh, all of this is garbage. And like, and I don't it know. Made sense. And I don't know. It's like any conspiracy. Like it is possible that is it's like a series of unfortunate coincidences. But when you're dealing again, you're talking about the mafia here. Like, so yeah, I think so interesting. I don't know if it says interconnected. Like the guy from Chicago, I'm like, okay, I don't know if he was involved. He, maybe he was just a shitty dude. Yeah. But I feel like Marcinkus and Velo, the guy who was the Secretary of State, because he lived in the Vatican, so he had easier access. Right. So that was crazy. Yeah. So do you think he was poisoned? Yes. Yes. See, these are all questions when I die. I'm going to write a list of, like, <laughs> crazy-ass theories that I want to know, like, the truth to. And this will Who killed definitely... <laughs> exactly. This will definitely be one of them. I feel like John Benet Ramsey is, like, number one. But yes. they, this might be two or three. Yeah, it's Once definitely up there. But, again, it's one of those things that, like, if the Catholic Church ever does deal with it, they're going to make sure that everyone involved is... Six feet under, yeah, and long dead. gone. Like in a hundred years, they'll be like, okay, yeah, he yeah. was. Right. We'll all be dead by <laughs> yeah. the time that. Because yeah, exactly. that's what they do. They're like, okay, yeah, you were right. Now that everyone's dead, we can talk about right. it. Like, oh, that was such a good story. I'm so glad yeah. that you. That was good. We mm-hmm. definitely did a, a great comeback after. It's a good place. like who done it because like you really don't know. No. Yeah. Shook. Well, now I'm not going to be able to think about anything else for a solid week. If you want to read the book, um, the book does have, like, a lot of pages dedicated to describing the financial situation, which I was kind of like, uh, I just want to read about the crime. It's (laughs) get to the juice. And a couple other books have come out since then, but his is, like, the big one. The number one. Well, he definitely goes in depth, like, in extensive research. Yeah. Well, it's, like, the financial scandals did happen. Like, those are confirmed. Like, they cannot deny that those happened. And the fact that those give, like, such a strong motive for murder, like, mm, suspicious. Very suspicious. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that's all I got. I mean, I'm I'm at a loss for words. He definitely was murdered. But that's yeah. just my opinion. Also, I don't know. So the author mentioned this as well. Like, the coffin he was in, he was in, like, three layers of coffin. What? Like, it was, like, they were like, no one's getting into this body. <laughs> like, where's it located? I mean, probably the Vatican. I think they have, like. Shovel? There's no security at the Vatican, I'm sure. Dick? It's low security, like. There's just one guy. He's like <laughs> leaning against the wall. He's asleep. <laughs> That's how I want to go out. Wanna yeah. Go also, out. whenever I read something about Freemasons, I always think of National Treasure. I, I still don't know what a Freemason is. I don't know. I, I literally couldn't figure it out. I was trying to do. Re- That's another thing where I feel like they're just so secretive that. But also, they're um, only for men, so gross. Only for men. <laughs> 
Yeah, the um, women. Let's see where I was going. I, so yeah. SpongeBob. All right. Yeah. Whatever. I got you. <laughs> well, thank you for telling yeah, me that you're story. Welcome. I feel so much more informed. Like you learned a lot today. Learned so much today. Would you like to share a story with me? Yes. About your youth. I know. All right. I've been thinking all episode. Like the time that I killed the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> it was me, guys. It was 1978. <laughs> um. Let's so for my story this week um i'll just talk about the coal mine you know we're gonna go there okay yeah this is kind of i didn't have one prepared so i'm ready all right this is is a conjoint story um so our eighth grade trip was two well it was a two-parter it was (laughs) (laughs) all right so let me backtrack a little bit and just Describe what Where did every other school go in there? Everyone went to Sits Flags, Cedar Point, Point, Darien Lake, fun stuff that kids want to do. Not not our grade school. They said you will be in a coal mine and watching Anne Frank play, and you will enjoy it. Okay, nothing against Anne Frank. Like you should read the book. Like it's important to history, but like important, but like. You know, we were 13. We had so little joy in our we lives. We were supposed to be celebrating our graduation, and you take us to a depressing-ass play yeah, and then like, make us go underground in a coal mine. I was like, Anne Frank wouldn't want us to spend our eighth grade trip. And then, yeah, and then we went to a coal mine because nothing screams child-friendly like hard hats and (laughs) all i remember is the guy who like did the presentation had on like the tightest shirt i've ever seen i remember (laughs) that i was like smuggling candy from one of my mother yeah your mom my mom was a chaperone yeah your mom was a chaperone even she was like this is sad she was like this is the saddest (laughs) (laughs) this is the best that they could do well we went on so the whole day started out, we went on the bus and we were already being streamed at because people like brought PG-13 movie instead of a PG We were movie. 13. We were 13. Anyway, so the teacher like completely like screams at us at the top of her lungs that the bus driver driver asked us if we were like from a detention center. It was... <laughs> It was a whole she thing. She straight up thought we were, like, juvenile delinquents. She did. You know, like, I, looking back, I'm, like, glad my mother came on that trip as one of the chaperones because I feel like she was, like, wow, you were correct whenever you Whenever about, you complain, like. She was, like, <laughs> your teachers are whack. Like, yes, they're all. Okay. Yeah. It so, was, but it was the coal mine where they filmed My Bloody Valentine, which I remember they told us that. Wait, what? Really? I'm pretty sure. Um. Let me do some. I'm pretty sure it was where they filmed My Bloody Valentine. Not that we were allowed to watch that. I blocked out the entire. Yeah. I remember bits and pieces of me being in like a little cart. Oh my gosh, yeah. And it was really short. And oh my gosh. And I'm claustrophobic, so I did not. And I did not have a good time. My mom was like, if we die here, I'm going to be pissed. And I was like, yeah, girl, me too. (laughs) My ghost has to haunt a coal mine. Oh my God. Upsetting I spaghetti. would be so upset. Yeah, upsetting I'm like one. How typical spaghetti. coal mine. Ooh, it's already spooky. Like it I just, just was not a good time. Yeah, just walking around underground. Like we were straight up underground for like an hour, just walking around the mines. Yep. And then we went to 
I remember we were late for the play. We were late for the play. We came in like the second act. And then, yeah, like we literally missed half the play. Yep. And we were the only like school there that wasn't acting like immature which, rats because yeah. we were juvenile delinquents. Exactly. So we, <laughs> we, were, we were whipped in the shape at an early age. I remember when they were asking us what we wanted to do, we were like, let's go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like, because they weren't go to the science. They told center. us, they were like, you're not going to go to an amusement park. So we were like, okay, like at least museums, we can like hang out with our friends, we can be indoors. And like, they tried to convince us that we chose the coal mine. You want to tell me what? <laughs> Find a 13-year-old. A 13-year-old <laughs> would write down on a piece of paper, coal mine. Like, why That was not even a, on our mind. I thought. That wasn't I've never thought mind. about a coal mine no, until that day. That was total BS. They made it up because they're like, well, this is the cheapest option. And they just... We paid for it anyway. <laughs> was money an issue? We had to... I mean, I think we only paid, like... Fifty dollars for the whole day. Whereas, well, we went to a coal mine. Yes, so we deal. <laughs> oh my like god! We saw the rockets. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that like Anne Frank was the highlight of our our day. Oh my god! Like a play about a teenager dying mm. was. The most enjoyable part of our day because yep, everything, everything else, else was just so yeah. bad. So yeah, that was a conjoint story for this week because we both. I will never go near a coal mine again. No. I would rather. Do you remember when we were in like fourth grade? We went on a trip to an oil refinery. Yes. Oh yeah, we went on a remember train. Remember we all got little bottles of oil. Yeah, and someone brought like a hornet on the train. <laughs> Don't you remember that? Yeah. I just remember we were, coming home with the dumbest souvenirs. My parents were like, why would you buy <laughs> We don't want this. I was like, what do you think is in a, a like an oil refinery right. gift shop? <laughs> yeah, we did not have the best field trips. No. No. Although, I mean, in high school, I went on a field trip to, like, the sewer system. <laughs> that might be worse. Oh, it was God. definitely grosser. So yeah, if you're looking for a fun trip for you and your 13-year-old, hit up your local coal mine. They will have a blast. So this episode is sponsored by coal, coal mines. mines. <laughs> Please fit it. But the coal industry. <laughs> Fossil fuels <laughs> sponsor. Okay, isn't it also weird that we went on multiple field trips at that school about fossil fuels? What? You know, like that or for the environment, like. Coal, oil. Ah. Uh, 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 oh, good point, Molly. Um, light bulb moment. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, love so. a good coal mine. Fun times. Mm. Well, that about sums it up. That's that's the gravy. Brian's ditching gravy. me to eat food. Eat food. So, our. Aardvark <laughs> City. Um, see you all next week. See you next week. I'll try to come up with a, a good topic to share with everyone. Yes. But in the meantime, please like and rate us on whatever platform okay, I'm you listen to podcasts at. Now to make a TikTok this week. All right. Yes. We are going to do it. Yes. And to watch that TikTok, please visit <laughs> Holy Ghost Pod. Holy Ghost Pod. Plural TikTok. ghosts. Multiple ghosts.
Yes. And please like and comment on whatever platform that yeah, you use. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Bye forever. Bye.